Welcome to another episode of Between Lewis and Lovecraft. Thank you so much for checking us out. This show is all about learning more about the authors that have inspired us and diving into the stories that they not only created, but lived as well. So join myself, Tyler Clausen, and my co-host, Hannah Ray Lambert, as we explore the worlds that live just out of reach. It's only 10.30 in the morning, and I've had a couple because I'm doing it like Hemingway did it. <laughs> and he always had a good amount before lunch. Usually he had a couple with breakfast. Get into it nice and, nice and early like Hemingway. <laughs> well, go to Lewis Lovecraft. You sound like both drunk and like you have a cold. <laughs> I have allergies. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> I'm high on Benadryl right now. Shh, I'm doing a bit, Hannah. Welcome to Petrillus Lovecraft. I'm just here to roast you. <laughs> I don't know what you thought my job description was. <laughs> I'm Tyler Clausen. And I'm Hannah Lambert, who's not drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not drunk either. I'm just living up to my new hero and uh, truth sayer and writer of great pieces of art. Tyler agrees with 100 or disagrees, I should say, with 100% of what he just said. <laughs> so he is channeling Hemingway by being a liar. <gasps> Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. We talk about authors and writers and everything that they did in their life. But today we're going to be skimming over a lot of Hemingway. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you guys have listened to part one yet. If you haven't, you definitely should. Yes. Because Hemingway's life was so like involved and he did packed, so much packed full. packed full and he didn't even live to be that old spoiler alert and i've got something to say about this but i'm gonna wait till later because i always do my sermon at the end of this end of the episode or towards the end and that's it involves this this thought process perfect so, <laughs> but uh, yeah where we left yeah. off last time was um when he was writing the sun also rises which was one of his first like well-known works his first novel for sure yeah we were like getting into Sun Also Rises. Yes. That's where we were, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I don't think we talked about Sun Also Rises very much, but I think we alluded to it. Yes, he was starting to write it because his his great friend F. Scott Fitzgerald was having Ugh. a lot of success with novels. Um, great Gatsby. Um and <laughs> so Hemingway, being the competitive soul that he is, was like, I gotta write a novel next. So I can do that better. He did, and Sun Also Rises was the result, and it's one of his to this day, I I would say most highly regarded works. Um he's got a few up there definitely. Yeah. But this is one that I know, like in my high school English class, we read Sun Also Rises and our uh, teacher was just like so in love with it. He was like, this is a book that Hemingway wrote as a young man at the beginning of his career. Yeah. And it really shows his wisdom and being able to write characters that are different from him and being able to write like how older people are thinking. Because one of the key mm. things in that book, um, it's about it's inspired by bullfights that he and his wife would watch while they were living in Spain. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> And one His of, first wife, Hadley. Yes, Hadley. God rest her soul. Um, and one of the, the key plot points, I think, is he examines like the the relationship between this older established bullfighter and one of the up-and-coming guys. And I know that one of the things that my high school teacher was really impressed with was how Hemingway captures the feeling of an older guy who's like seeing his career kind of mm. collapse. He's becoming 
less relevant. Yeah. And just capturing that was a really impressive element of his writing as a 20-something. Sure. Being able to channel that that feeling of becoming obsolete, basically. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think you're I think you're totally right, because when you look at what a lot of writers write, um, especially nowadays with the Amazon explosion and self-publishing, indie publishing, most writers are writing versions of themselves mm-hmm. um, in a fantasy realm or whatever it is. You know, I did exactly the same thing. Well, I did something close to it with the book that I did. And you get your the the characters are generally contemporaries of the author. You mm-hmm. know, they're around the same age. Um, and and so to be if not, they're usually writing about younger people like J.K. Rowling writing about Harry Potter or um, I don't know, whatever. Because uh, you were that age once, so you're at like, at one yeah. point you have that experience, and that and and I totally understand that, and that's where I came from in my own writing. So to be able to sit down and go, oh, let's write from the perspective of somebody who has more experience than I do, or has had um, a different philosophy of life because of the life that they've lived that I haven't even touched. Super interesting. Really interesting. And I, I do. I think that's a good point. Yeah. So for all of his, his personal flaws, Hemingway was a thoughtful guy. Yeah. And he was a good writer. Yes. Like that. We need to make sure we I, I don't understate that. Like he was a great writer. I, and there's a reason why his works are still alive today. He wrote. See, and I, everything that I have is for my stupid end of the, end of the day <laughs> summary. But like. Like he. He wrote in a very specific dial, not dialect. Yeah, he wrote like this, 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 and not nothing, nothing fancy or I want to say floral. It's not floral. Um, he can have flowery, flowery. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, he writes as dictation almost, mm-hmm. and um, and it's, it's super interesting. And I think it gives way for what I generally really got out of reading about him again i read um a biography by mary v dearborn and um she wrote fucking 30 hours worth of of audiobook it was too much but what i got out of it was that during this time it was a time of experimentation in writing and perfection in writing and if there's one one thing that we can say about hemingway is that he perfected his writing. Mm-hmm. I think that's where I would, the good thing that I could bring to the table. <laughs> I like that. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say about The Sun Also Rises was how important it was for that time period. Um, and you kind of alluded to that, like perfecting that that style of yeah. writing. Um, as a genre, though, too, The Sun Also Rises, <clears throat> Rises really characterized the quote-unquote lost generation. So that's the group that came of age during World War One. Um, and lost in that context means like disoriented or directionless. And it was referring to the, the spirit of many of the war's survivors in that period. Yeah. Um, so The Sun Also Rises was one of the the key books about that generation. Uh, some of F. Scott Fitzgerald's work, like The Great Gatsby, also um, is thought to be really important for that generation. Um, and in Sun Also Rises, Gertrude Stein, who we talked about in the last episode, one of his main mentors, um, is credited with actually coining the term uh, lost generation and he ends or he he used it as the epigraph for his his novel when someone I think it's one of the characters says you are all a lost generation right so it's really like 
The novel itself is a real commentary on the time period, which is kind of an am- ambitious goal for a first sure. novel, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm just going to sum up our generation. But I, I think that it's because he wrote so many short stories. He had already had some published work. So it wasn't like it wasn't like me. Right. If yeah. I get published, it will be my first real work. Right. Because I don't write short stories. I, I'm not a reporter. I don't write anything. I stopped blogging because it's boring as hell (laughs) i started podcasting because i could just talk right so if i ever get published as an author my first book will be my first real work um that's not the case with him no he's he's been doing it for writing for so long that i think he is more qualified to especially the life he's living and the people he's around you know he did spend time in the war even if he wasn't like fighting in the war he was in the war he got injured he's he went home he saw his family breaking apart he saw his friends breaking apart he got experience and he was qualified to write about it yes 100 percent agreed and then he divorces his wife i was gonna say (laughs) things are going really well Except for his marriage. Um, So around this time, he started an affair with Pauline Pfeiffer. um, And and she was like friends with them. She ran in their social circle. Um, Hadley became aware of of the affair. Did we we talk about this? I think we might have a little bit. um, And I don't know how Hadley wouldn't have known because like Pauline would literally go on like trips and vacations with them. Yeah. Yeah. and so it was kind of like a, a drawn out separation. Um, in in November, Hadley formally requested a divorce, um, and as part of this, she she put in the hundred days stipulation. And yeah, I think we alluded a, to that. This is a big deal. Real quick, the the thing that happened, I think, before you know, you've got this, you've got this affair that's happening. I know that we talked about the idea, like uh, Hadley brought it up to Hemingway. And then Hemingway was pissed off at Hadley for bringing it up, like opening it up and being like, you should never have talked about it. Yeah. We were all happy. Right. Like, that's such a dick move. Um, but even further of a dick move, not on Hemingway, is all of their friends because they were all like, oh, yeah, Pauline is a Pauline is a much more fashionable partner for you. <laughs> like you should you should go ahead and upgrade your partnership, which is bullshit. Like, that's not how marriage works, dude. Like. Sure, if they were just together, if they were just sleeping together, fuck buddies, if they were even just like really, really committed girlfriend and boyfriend, they have not made a con- contract like marriage. Like that's a big deal. I don't know. I'm going to get into my whole marriage <laughs> thing. But like <laughs> like my they, whole marriage yeah, thing. That's that's for my Bible podcast. <laughs> um, but like they straight up were they were just like oh yeah he should be with pauline because she's much more fashionable she's yeah much, she came from a wealthy family yeah. a connected family and but the thing is like they a lot of times they were talking about how hadley didn't dress really well but it's because ernest wouldn't let her buy new clothes so it's like he made her the less fashionable partner and then justified going with pauline to his friends because she was the much cooler one to be with just a just a dick move. Yeah. Sorry. That was my rant for that. <laughs> no, that's it's a justifiable rant. So um, as part of it, Hadley said something along the lines of like, 
okay, I'll give you a, a divorce if like you spend a hundred days apart from Pauline. Days apart. Yeah. So Pauline like went back to the states, and yep. I think they were still writing to each other, which was a big deal. I don't think they were supposed to nope. under Hadley's terms, but they kept writing to each other, and it almost went for a hundred more days because Pauline found out that Hadley wasn't. Hadley found out that Pauline yeah, wasn't. They were. Hadley didn't want them to have any contact for a hundred days. She wanted it to simmer. She wanted the feelings to rest so that Ernest could come back to it fresh. But he was just exchanging exchanging love letters with her. And distance makes the heart grow fonder. It really mm-hmm. does. I know this for a fact. <laughs> I've done it. And so like they fell in love even more. And when Pauline found out that Hadley was upset about this, she's like, well, maybe we need to do it for another 100 days and really have no contact. Oh, it was Pauline's idea yeah. to extend it. I thought it would have been Pauline Hadley's. Pauline wanted to do it right. Like, she she wanted to be a good wife to, to Hemingway, and she wanted to start things off the right way, um, despite the fact that she was sleeping with her best friend's husband. Yeah. Like, that kind of sucks, but, but at least she tried to do it the right way. But then they eventually all came to an agreement, and... Yeah, Hadley granted him the divorce, and then 107 days after uh, last seeing each other, Pauline came back, and they reunited. Yeah, and Hemingway became Catholic at that point. Yes, so he, like, converted to Catholicism partly so that they could get married, because I guess... He did a lot of research. They both did a lot of research to see how she could, um, within church laws, legally get married to... A man who's been divorced. Right. And one of the big stipulations is that he had to convert to Catholicism. So he did it. And they got married. And they went on a honeymoon. And Hemingway got anthrax, which is perfect karma. Yeah. So this is where I'm going to be. I have no information until way later. So this is... Perfect. I'm just going to be making jokes from this point on. I'm just going to try to go quickly because as I was like writing all of my notes, (laughs) I saw that it was getting way bogged down because... My uh, biography by Carlos Baker, it talks about literally every single thing that Hemingway ever did in his life, every illness, every <laughs> back and forth to different countries, every vacation, every car accident. It's and, intense. And again, I'm going to bring this up in my end point, but th- the reason why I'm okay with jumping over a lot of this stuff to where I come back in is because he wrote so much about his own life that it's... It, like we like to talk about the author's lives going into the fictional books that they write, right? And and he wrote fiction, but it was all based on his own life, mm-hmm. all of it. So he, you don't need any background because he he lived such an exciting life; it was worth writing about. Yes. So if you want this, if you want more of this middle time from like his late twenties to I've come in probably around his mid fifties. Go read his books. Like, you'll, <laughs> you'll get, get plenty it. of it. So that's my my thing right now. Yeah. So the lightning round. So they're on their honeymoon. He gets anthrax. He starts planning out his next collection of short stories, Men Without Women, which ended up getting published in October of 1927. It sold decently well. Um, but at the same time, he was kind of annoyed because he was getting all this press. And so was his mother, who we've talked about his relationship with her before. Yeah. Because she... Their, like, hometown newspaper in Oak Park, <coughs> Illinois, wrote some article headlined, Launches New Career After Raising Family, about his mom and her success as a landscape painter or something yeah. in her 50s. And so that made him really pissed off. I got, I was, I was, 
I've seen stuff about how like the small town paper would always write shit about their whole family. And I'm like, what kind of people have nothing better to do than cover <laughs> local news? <laughs> As Guys, I wear check out my Tyler <laughs> a local news podcast. You are the agency that's pissing Hemingway off, yeah, basically. Yeah. Um and I put a note in here. Why the heck is Hemingway always getting sick? Because after this, he got really sick again, and he got a toothache at the end of 1927, which apparently was a bad enough toothache to go into this biography about him. (laughs) (laughs) Then he started the new year, 1928, with illness and a bizarre accident in the bathroom. Did you read about this accident? No. Again, I don't know anything (laughs) from after Sun Also Rises. So one night, Hemingway gets up and has to go to the bathroom, and instead of, like, pulling... He he thought it was, like, a ceiling fan or something. Instead, he pulled, like, a chain, and it broke a skylight down on top of him what? and it like cut up his head really bad and he was famous enough at that point that the papers picked up the story and made fun of him because oh, he had to like go no. to the hospital to get stitches and stuff and they were like he pulled a skylight down on himself oh, oh my goodness so he's getting sick all the time he's having all these accidents he's i a know shit show. later on they talked about how many times he's had a concussion yeah was this one of the times that he got a concussion maybe okay it didn't specifically mention concussion here but okay. we're gonna get to some yeah man um and then at some point in here, um, Pauline gets pregnant and wants to go back to the United States because all these people just want to have their babies in the U.S. I don't know what the reason for that was. Like, you're you're not a U.S. citizen unless you're born on U.S. citizen soil. You, you are, have to apply for citizenship if you're born outside the U.S. But like everyone I know who's been born in Canada, they're still citizens. And like my cousins who were born in Australia, they're American citizens. I don't know that they, but they had, had to apply, to apply for, for citizenship. So it just makes it easier. Yeah. OK. Yeah. It's it's. Like, that's the thing about, like, I'm not going to get into the political aspect of it, but, like, Mexicans coming up to America and having children, their children are then American citizens and they're anchor babies. But it's different if your parents are both American citizens. I don't know. Maybe. But there was a whole episode on 30 Rock where Jack Donaghy needed to get his his pregnant wife to uh, to America before she gave birth. And she's giving birth like the whole way through Canada because they want their baby to be American. Um, So my information, my knowledge of this is strictly based off of of sitcom situations. So I am not the authority. My knowledge (laughs) is just from family and stuff. And I thought it was pretty easy if you had two American parents to be an American citizen. But apparently all of Hemingway's wives want to have their kids in America, which is fine. So they take an 18 day uh, like boat voyage to Havana and then transfer to another boat for Key West. And he he kind of wanted to go to Key West anyway because one of his writer friends was like always talking it up and Hemingway's like this is a sounds like a great place. Pre-1960s so, uh Caribbean. Hell yeah, man. Heck yeah. Um so they went to Key West and during this time um his parents came to visit and he saw that his father's health was really bad. His mom was doing great. His dad was not doing well at all. He had diabetes and was just like looking really unhealthy. Um, and so that was, I think, the last time that Hemingway saw his dad oh, really? alive, I think. Um, so they ended up going to Kansas City uh, for the birth of their son, Patrick, uh, in June of 1928. It was a very difficult delivery. Pauline ended up having a C-section and spent 10 days in the hospital afterwards. Oh, jeez. And this is going to come up in one of his books. So In one of Patrick's books? Or no, one of Hemingway's. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, and then they these people, like, don't wait to travel at all. No. It's all they do. <laughs> That's all they do. So, finally, Pauline and the baby are, 
are rusted up. Hemingway is 478 pages into his next novel. They go back to Pauline's family in Arkansas. And then Hemingway and a friend, they ditch the wife and the new kid and they go out to Wyoming. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is... (laughs) Could you imagine if I left Rebecca in another state while she just gave birth after spending 10 days in the hospital? I'm like, hey, babe, I'm just going to dip out. And go to another state. Go to a dude ranch or whatever and, and do some hunting. So this is a thing that, like, the biography goes way into every single trip. He goes to Wyoming a lot. He's always out there at the dude ranch or whatever, hunting sure. and, and just chilling out. Uh, he does a lot of writing out there. Um, and then back and forth, like, between Arkansas, where Pauline's family lives. Um, so that's kind of what's going on in this time period. At some point in 1928, I think he was actually, like, planning to go see his, his family again soon. Oh, uh, what when, a good dad. Oh, no, oh no, his, 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 his actual family. Not okay. his actual children. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> no. Uh, he was going to go visit his parents at some point, but he gets, like, a wire or something informing him that his father has committed suicide. Right. Um, and there were a lot of factors that went into this. He he knew that his father had been stressed about some financial problems and also was just in a lot of physical pain from his diabetic complications and also angina. So he was having, like, chest pain all the time. Um, <laughs> angina. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's not a funny disease. <laughs> it's not a funny disease, Tyler. <laughs> so Hemingway takes this really hard obviously mm-hmm. um i think of his parents he was always closer with his father oh yeah yeah i mean oh 100 percent. so i mean this is a hard time for him um but i mean life goes on and hemingway uh ends up publishing a farewell to arms in 1929 and this is the one that's like he alludes to pauline's difficult pregnancy in it he also alludes to his own past with the um the nurse. the nurse? Yeah. Yeah. So the premise of A Farewell to Arms is an American in the Italian army um, falls in love with an English nurse while he's in the hospital. Yeah. And then he gets out of the hospital. Some other shit happens. He's like going to be executed or something. Oh. So they flee to Switzerland and he's finally with the love of his life and she dies giving birth. Oh, geez. So he kind of amalgamated his, Some his younger self getting dumped. And is like, fine, I'll just kill you off. I'll just kill you off. <laughs> like, in a similar way to how my current wife, wife almost, almost died. died. <laughs> but, <laughs> At least my current wife could stay alive. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> I mean, considering all the other mean things he wrote about Agnes, the nurse. Uh, yeah, he was pretty, he was, he was so petty about her. So petty. But A Farewell to Arms was a huge success as well. It really cemented his role as a major American writer at even at the time. So this was a case where he's getting the recognition while he's still alive, which good for you, Hemingway. Sure. Yeah, it's what everybody wants. Yes. Yeah. It is the goal. I honestly think that the way Hemingway's career went is exactly how every writer wants their career to work. I'm going to write some books. They're going to make movies and TV shows off of them, and I get to have a big say in how they do that. Yeah. And I get to be a part of the production. Like, that is that is what every writer wants. And I get to make a lot of money. Oh, yeah, that too. That too. And I'm going to just travel. <laughs> yeah. And in the early 1930s, he did a lot of that. So he kind of like ping-ponged between winters and Key West and summers in Wyoming and all the other places in between. He's like never staying in one place for very long. Sure. Um, 
And then his and Pauline's second son, so his third son total, Gregory Hancock Hemingway, was born in November of 1931, again in Kansas City, because they're obsessed with the hospitals there or something. (laughs) Uh, And then also around this time, Pauline's uncle bought the couple a house in Key West. So life is good. Yeah. Life is really good. There's people living in a basement trying to provide for their family, but- I'm just going to buy you a house in Key West. Pauline's family has a lot of yeah, money. Yeah, they're rich. And I, I can't remember at what point in the timeline this happened, but uh, Hemingway had been like letting his hair and beard grow out all scruffy on the Wyoming I'm, ranch. Trust me, I am trying to avoid this conversation so much. Because you're letting your... Him and his hair, man. Oh, him and his... So he was like letting himself get really scruffy looking. He goes back to Arkansas to see Pauline and her family and like... These school children mistake him for a hobo yeah. as he's walking to their house, and they start pelting him with snowballs to try to defend Pauline's family. They're like, oh, my God, don't don't attack them or whatever. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah. So, he kind of got the clue and maybe shaved a little bit. Hopefully, after yeah. that. He has a fetish for hair. For hair, yeah. I mean, we talked about that a little bit with him growing out his, his hair, hair and, and then his wife cutting her hair to the same length. Yeah, his wives almost always had short, short hair. hair. Yeah. Like boyish cuts. Like uh, Stein did. Yes. Gertrude Stein Which was like, short hair. Part of it is probably like the style back then. I mean, sure. this is the 20s. The you got late, flappers and stuff, but also it's like a weird coincidence. Yeah. Not a coincidence <laughs> that all of Hemingway's wives. I mean, it's not have bad. Short hair. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, like, even when we talked about Lewis having a, a fetish for spanking, like, he never. <laughs> no judgment. He never did it without consent. <laughs> He literally would pay people who were willing to let him spank them. Um, it's the same thing here. Like, it's his fetish. As long as it doesn't hurt someone, it's fine. He, he's super into hair, though. He's like, got a hair And thing. it comes up a lot. A lot. <laughs> so it's why I'm, like, I'm trying not to be all about his sex life because there are other interesting things. But he is he's fascinated by hair. He is. So moving on from hair, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, at some point in here, he gets a haircut, thank mm-hmm. God. Yeah. In 1933, um, he and Pauline took a safari to Africa. This was a trip that he had been wanting to do for a long time and had to put it off for various reasons. Um, so they took this 10-week trip, uh, hired like the same guide that showed Teddy Roosevelt around Africa to be ah. their safari guide, um, hunted a bunch of stuff, killed a bunch of animals, so... I don't know how you feel about that, but Hemingway's out there like shooting leopards and ta- Jimmy John's lions all and over stuff. Again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so this trip provided a lot of material for some of his later works, um, like Green Hills of Africa, short stories, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, yeah. uh, stuff like that. He did have yet another major illness while in Africa. <laughs> he got amoebic dysentery that caused a prolapsed intestine. And he had to be evacuated by plane to Nairobi in the middle of his safari. How do you prolapse an intestine? It, like, collapses or something? I'm, I thought that prolapse is when it turns inside out. Maybe. Because I, I thought that happens to dogs, prolapse stomachs. He wrote about it afterwards. He was, like, it happened while he was out hunting or something. He was sitting by this tree, and then all of a sudden he's like, oh, shit, something's wrong. Yeah. And he, like, it sounded like he almost started hallucinating a little bit. Oh, I bet. If yeah. the pain's bad enough and you're in the heat, yeah. Africa hot. Somehow he managed to get back to camp and they were like, okay, we're going to get you on a, a plane and get yeah. you out of here. And it was not a short trip either. Like, no. these are the little 
1930s planes or whatever. Yeah, the ones to... where you have to start by by like hitting the <laughs> propeller so that it goes the opposite way, like a clock or something. And they had to stop and like refuel along the way to even get there. So Ugh. this is just a miserable time. I one time broke my elbow and I went from here in Canby to up in Oregon City, which how long would you say it would take to go from here where we're at right now up to Willamette Falls Hospital? 15 minutes tops? Maybe, yeah. It felt like probably an hour, and I'm not joking. You feel every single bump, every single bump. To be in a bumpy little plane for for literal hours, hours. couldn't imagine what that would be like. So he, he, you know, heals up at the hospital and then goes back to finish the rest of his safari, (laughs) which is like totally chill. We good? I'm going to go kill a lion now. <laughs> I'm going to go kill a lion. And I think he had a friend with him on this trip, too, and it showed his competitive nature again because his friend kept, like, everything that Hemingway killed, his friend killed a bigger one. Yeah. So he was getting was really pissed off. off. Yeah. And then at the end, like, the the hunter guy dude had some words of wisdom, like, come on, isn't it still, like, beautiful, and wouldn't you rather enjoy the time? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to be better about this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be better by not being myself. Is not the first or the last time he will have said that. Jeez Louise. So they go back to Key West in early 1934, and he starts to work on Green Hills of Africa, which was published the next year to mixed reviews. So it wasn't the smashing success that uh, Sun Also Rises and A Farewell to Arms were, um, which irked him a little bit. Sure. Um, he's got to he's got to hit it out of the park every time or else he's not a good writer, right? Right. He's got very high standards standards for himself. Um around the same time too, he bought his boat which is like literarily famous, the Pilar. Um and he started sailing the Caribbean. And so he would like go out to these islands. He would always take friends with him cuz that's how he was. It was always a big social expedition, uh do some fishing, stuff like that. Um and this decade was actually like not very big in terms of writing novels for him. Right. So he worked on To Have and Have Not, which was the only novel that he really wrote during the 1930s. Huh. Um, and it's not one that I know by name. So Me I either. don't think it, it must not be one of his good ones. It's not one of his best ones. Um, and then this was also when he met another influential lady in his yeah. life. Yeah. So. His favorite bar in Key West is Sloppy Joe's. Uh, Great name. He was just sitting there late in uh, 1936 when a trio of tourists walk in. Um, It's Martha Gellhorn, who's like a journalist, her brother and their mom. And they just start talking for some reason and they really hit it off with the Hemingways. So much so that... Uh, um, I want to just jump in here real quick. Um, You say they start talking for some reason. From what I read, uh, especially towards the end of his life... Um, Hemingway could talk to literally. He talks anyone to everybody That's because why he, he has the, the best <laughs> stories to share, even if they're not about his novel. Just what he does on a daily basis is an exciting thing. But like towards the end of his life, like he's telling the same stories three times in one night because, like, one because people want to hear it, but two because he's so full of himself. He likes telling the same stories and he gets better at it and better. Like he's already a great writer. He's a gifted storyteller. So he's only getting better every time he tells a story. Yeah. Um, so he 
Yes, that's worth saying. He is the type of guy who talks to literally he's everybody. He's good looking. He can tell a good story. And he's a famous author at this point. Did we mention in the last episode how hot young Hemingway was? Well, I don't think we jumped into it. We talked about how I think he looks like Orson Welles. Yes. And then we yeah. determined that he does not. And he's much hotter than Orson Welles. <laughs> <laughs> Go Google a picture of young Ernest Hemingway. And people Hemingway. wrote about it. People in their like in their memoirs and their journals would talk about how fucking hot this guy is. <laughs> he's just stacked. He's good looking. Like his face is like, like graceful. And like, he's not just hard looking. Like a lot of people assume he would be. He's like pretty and manly looking. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. So he's got it all going on except for the part where he's kind of a douchebag. But so he's talking with these tourists and they're all hitting it off so much so that Martha even stayed with him and Pauline for a while after her family went home. Yeah. Which is like, what the fuck is with all of these? Like, why do all of Hemingway's wives just go, sure, this young, hot woman can stay with us? Dude, I, I don't know. I <laughs> Maybe it's something that that men and women have learned over the last hundred years. That <laughs> you don't do. But let's just assume. Let's just play a game real quick. Me and Becca have a house at, let's say, a beach house, right? And we go, hey, Hannah. You want to come stay with us for uh, three weeks? Just come stay with us at the beach house. And then at some point, Becca's like, hey, I'm going to leave now. So it's just going to be Hannah and Tyler. Let's do that, huh? It's like, you and I have a relationship, a working relationship, in a public studio where like people are seen. There's no way in hell you and I are going to spend <laughs> <laughs> any time together alone. Like, Aw, as, shucks. And, and Key West... In the Caribbean, where it's, like, super romantic, like, stop putting yourself in that position. Be smart about it. I think it's crazy that Pauline, it, like, lets this happen people, after she did the same she thing. She did the exact same thing. Uh, it just, it bothers me because it's, it's, it's obvious that you want it to happen. Yeah. You don't put yourself in that position if you don't want it to happen. And I don't know that anything happened at this point, but this is when they're becoming friends. Um, and so... In, in 1937, the following year, Hemingway goes off to cover the Spanish Civil War for the North American Newspaper Alliance. Mm. Guess who else is covering the Spanish Civil War at some point? I'm going to go with his his loving and endearing wife who gave him a child. Mm, wrong. Oh, no. It's the journalist, Martha <laughs> Gellhorn. <laughs> who so, he has already made a very romantic connection with yes, in his home. Yep. And I think they've probably been writing and stuff in between, but Yeah. So Hemingway's over there with his friend, uh, Dos Passos. They both signed on to work on a like documentary <laughs> love, type thing. I love your note on the outline. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get to that. Okay. So okay. Hemingway and his friend are over there. They're working uh, as screenwriters for something called The Spanish Earth. Uh, it's like a documentary style thing about the war. Um, Dos Passos ends up leaving after his friend and translator, Jose Robles, was executed by one of the the groups in the war. Sure. And this is a part where he and Hemingway like sort of had a mini falling out because Hemingway was like, well, he probably deserved it if he got executed, oh, which is like, it's a mm, dick move. as we're going to find out later, Hemingway has kind of a pattern of like saying some shit, saying some shit, but also like cozying up with dictators oh, and like yeah, 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 yeah. violent, uh, violent types. And so I think him just being like, oh, well, he probably deserved it. Right. Didn't sit well, <laughs> shockingly. Yeah, no way. And around this time, uh, Gellhorn is also in Spain 
And my note that Tyler loves is, spoiler alert, they gonna bang. They gonna bang. They're all over here having a grand old time while there's a civil war going on. What else are you gonna do? Please, man. So, while in Madrid, Hemingway also wrote his only play during his career, which was called The Fifth Column, which I had never heard of before. Didn't know he wrote a play. I don't think it went well for him. I don't even know why he tried, (laughs) to be honest. Why Hemingway? I mean, why not? Honestly, why not? Why Just not? do everything. If you're writing, then try something else out. Experiment. I think that exactly what I said earlier. This is a time of experimentation in writing American literature. Mm-hmm. So he's trying things out. He wants to see if he's good at it. He probably didn't feel like it was worth it, so he didn't do it again. <laughs> well, I think it's yes. I agree. Like experimentation and writing is good, but also Hemingway, like he needs the the success with everything so yeah. i think it's probably if hard he didn't get for enough him. accolades for it then he's not going to go back he's not going to do it again and he's going to get all bitter and he's also the type who can't take constructive criticism at all. at all i there was one point where i think he was back in wyoming and asked a friend to look at something he had worked on and the friend was like uh, i'd rather not because he knows how hemingway <laughs> is and then hemingway makes him and he the friend tries to say in like the nicest ways possible that it wasn't very good and hemingway got so mad he like chucked the manuscript into a snowbank oh my gosh so yeah he he's a little sensitive just a little bit just a little bit he's a little snowflake <laughs> right so then um at the at the conclusion of his time in spain um he goes back to key west and <coughs> tyler's choking <coughs> <laughs> Get some water. This episode of Between Lewis and Lovecraft is brought to you by The Book Nook. The Book Nook, where you can be as loud about your love for books as I am. If you're looking for a place to sit down, relax, and not be aggressively shaved by the librarians at the library because you eat KFC too sloppily and you're making the other readers uncomfortable with the noises you're making while you read Fifty Shades of Grey, then come on down to the Book Nook and enjoy reading the way you want to. The Book Nook has the perfect selection of books for every kind of reader. Mystery, horror, fiction, Nonfiction, science fiction, fantasy fiction, biographies, autobiographies, and all the classics like The Odyssey, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, and anything by Charles Dickens. The Book Nook. If you don't know how to swim, dive into a book. All right, and we're back from the commercial break. (laughs) (laughs) Tyler is alive, guys. So here's what just happened. I'm drinking a hard cider. It's before noon. Well, at this point, it's noonish. Um, We've been here for like two hours. I, I, I am towards the end of my drink, and I thought there was less than there was. Oh. So I took the my I'm using air quotes last gulp, but there was more than I expected, <laughs> and then it got caught in my throat, and I tried to swallow. Didn't work. Tried to swallow again. And then it went into my nose. Oh, God. Straight up. <laughs> it went through my nose and started pouring out. That's why I immediately ran off. Because I didn't want you to see, like, <laughs> cider just pouring down. And like a good <clears throat> friend, I didn't go after him to see yeah. if he was okay. <laughs> so that was... So then I had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I coughed so hard. I had to go to the bathroom. So... So we'll just we'll just use the uh, we'll use that for our commercial break. Nice. We're back now talking about Hemingway. Hemingway. <laughs> uh, sorry, guys. Ooh, that was fun. I think before 
Tyler almost died. I was talking about how <laughs> his mar- his second marriage was coming to an end. An end. Yeah. Slowly but surely. Uh, yeah, it took a long time for them to actually separate. Um, yeah, but- because Martha was, or not Martha, Pauline, Pauline was like, she wanted to be with him. She yeah. loved him. She want- She had two kids with him. So, And that was, I think, his longest marriage by far. They were married for like 13 years total. <clears throat> um, but th- they started separating. Uh, he went to Cuba in his boat uh, to live at the Hotel Ambos Mundos in Havana. Uh, Martha soon joined him, and then they rented a 15-acre property outside of the city, uh, the La Finca, um, and they would have lots of guests over, still living that that lifestyle. They're like serial extroverts. I don't understand how they <laughs> hang out with people so often. Um, and then that summer, Pauline and the children officially like leave him. Uh, right. He married Martha in November of 1940 in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Um and then he made Ketchum, Idaho, like his primary residence there. Cuba became the winter home. They're still going to Key West. They're traveling everywhere. I cannot emphasize this enough. They, they always, go everywhere. They were always traveling. I don't know how. Yeah. I don't know how they paid for this. Like he was making money, but not that much money. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't. I'm not gonna sit here and say what his finances were. I have no idea. But if you make, if you are passionate about something, you'll make it happen. You'll make it happen. I know he had to. Um. He. I mean, he was making money, but. He also spent a lot of money, and there were various points where, like, he had to, like, panic wire friends to be like, hey, will you give me a loan? Like, I need Jeez. money. So <clears throat> I, I, I sense a little bit of irresponsibility. Yeah? But that's just me. So um, during this time, he also wrote what is another one of his most famous novels, I think, For Whom the Bell Tolls, which was published in October of 1940. Um, he wrote that while bouncing around from Cuba, Wyoming, Sun Valley, blah, blah, blah. And this became his writing pattern, basically. Then also, sadly, at this time, his dear friend F. Scott Fitzgerald dies of a heart attack. And he doesn't find out until, like, after the funeral, I think. One of their other friends went to the funeral and told him later. He was like, hey, sorry, I... I, We didn't let you know. (laughs) Your best friend died. I think he may have been, like, abroad at this point, too. Um, But he was just like, hey, he didn't suffer. And I think their relationship had been at a good point. Yeah. A good place at this point. Um, we talked in the last episode about how Hemingway's a douchebag to his friends. Yeah, especially Fitzgerald. Yeah, and there was one point where um, Fitzgerald got mad at him because Hemingway uh, wrote something in one of his books about Fitzgerald, like naming him. Yeah. And F. Scott was like, bruh, don't talk don't about do that. me in your books. <laughs> it's kind of mean. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, but I think... I think they had kind of resolved some of their issues. They were on good terms. So at least he didn't have to live with that regret from having lost a friend. Yeah. And I I think you're exactly right. And I know later on, though, he really starts to um, be introspective of how he treated uh, Fitzgerald Mm -hmm. and really starts to it really starts to weigh on him like man i he was my best friend yeah like, he was he was a good dude he was a great guy and i i screwed him over so bad yeah he also feels this way about pauline and especially hadley yeah um so like i think towards the end of his life he just starts to really see his patterns of destruction i think um he he started really thinking about how he treated hadley at the end of his marriage to pauline yeah so i think he even wrote to hadley a couple times and was like 
you know, you you were really a great woman and I yeah. didn't appreciate you fully. Um, and there were a couple times he didn't see uh, her very often at all. Like normally when his, their son together would come visit him, like he would just roll up on a train or something. Sure. Um, but there were a couple times when Hemingway saw Hadley with her new husband and was like, she's doing good. Like this is a good relationship for her, which I thought was very charitable of him to think <laughs> like not uh, characteristically self-centered like he normally is. All right, let's. Uh, <clears throat> we've got so much. I'm just. I'm looking at. We saw this. so much. We're on. We're only on. We're about to finish page two of four on this outline. Oh my god. Okay, speed round. Yeah, for real. Let's get to old man in the sea, as fast as you can. Okay. <laughs> god, there. I mean, there's Nazi infiltration and all of that. First. <laughs> Him and Martha, living in Cuba part-time, they take on a mission to weed out Nazis who had infiltrated the island nation. Um, He enlists a bizarre combination of Spaniards, bartenders, wharf rats, priests, assorted exiled counts and dukes, blah, blah, blah. And they build up, like, this spy organization that goes out doing, like, Cubo, like, hunts. Basically, they take their boats out and look for German submarines and, like, think they're going to bomb them. Yep. Uh, so that's something that Hemingway was doing while he was living in Cuba. Yeah. Uh, it became a real passion of his, too. Like, he, into his old age, he would go out, and he was super into it. He's like, I'm going to get those Germans. Yep. Um, uh, this actually was one of the contributing factors to his next divorce, because he's just hanging out hunting for Q-boats all the time in Cuba, and Martha's like, she's traveling a lot on her own, because she's sick of him partying with all his friends after they're Q-boat hunts or whatever. Uh-huh. He also belittled her in front of others. He yep. even backhanded her one night when she tried to force him to let her drive because he'd been drinking. Yep. Yep. And she started to harp on him to cover the war in Europe because she was like, this is your thing. This is a big deal. So finally he goes to Europe from May of 1944 to March of 1945. He was present um, for the Normandy landings, present at the liberation of Paris, uh, he drove himself to go co- cover the Battle of the Bulge, but he was really sick when he left. And as soon as he got there, he was hospitalized. So he missed like all of the action. <laughs> but also during this time, he was like, it's that weird war correspondent thing where he's like reporting on the war, but he's also going out with them and like doing actual like missions Work. and stuff yeah. and like helping them. So he ended up uh, a few years later getting the Bronze Star for bravery during World War II. Yeah. All right. Um, And at this time he met. Mary Welsh, a Time Magazine correspondent. She was married to another reporter at the time, but they started, like, writing letters to each other. They didn't see each other in person that often, I don't think, during the war. Sure. But they had, like, a love connection. Love connection. Love connection. Welcome to Love Connection. So, Martha's out. Mary's in. (laughs) He traded in for the new model. (laughs) Yes. They got married in 1946. um, And, like, they're... Their life together was very complicated and had a lot of problems right from the beginning. She had an ectopic pregnancy uh, like five months after they got married. Yeah. They had a series of car accidents that hurt Ernest and then later um, his son with Pauline Patrick. Mary broke her right ankle Uh and then her left in two separate skiing accidents. Yeah. And also, Hemingway's friends were all dying, and he got really depressed around here. He'd lost William Butler Yates, Ford Maddox Ford, Fitzgerald, Sherwood Anderson, James Joyce, Gertrude Stein, and then in 1947, Max Perkins, who was his longtime editor and a close friend. Yeah. 
And as part of that, it kind of like did the psychosomatic thing. He started having headaches, which could have also been all the concussions from the car accidents. Uh, He had high blood pressure. He was eating a lot, having weight problems, eventually diabetes, much of which was the result of previous accidents and many years of heavy drinking. Yep. Somehow, he still finished 800 pages of The Garden of Eden by June of 1946 and also started working on a trilogy. Um, But both of those projects kind of stalled out. And then we get to The Old Man and the Sea. (sighs) Man. We skipped some years in there. Guys, seriously, there's so much in this guy's life. And this is, when Old Man and the Sea comes out, I, I think it is highly poetic that Old Man and the Sea really... Um, is the gateway for us to get into the end of his life because Old Man in the Sea is a story about death mm-hmm. and not just your own death, but the death that was all around him at this time. Um, <clears throat> he started becoming very, very um, concerned about what was going on with him and his his weight. Like, you know, you've got notes in here with him dealing with that stuff um, and uh, and then he was he it wasn't just that he was depressed like at this point they're able to through his writing and uh testimonies of other people they're able to straight up say he had manic depression and so that's it's during his times of mania that he would do majority of his writing and the reason why he didn't write a lot in the 30s because he wasn't depressed. He wasn't. Well, he wasn't manic at that point. And so these these mood swings would come and go and he would change. And and so it was really hard on Mary. And, you know, a big deal for Mary is <clears throat> she was uh, verbally abused. She was physically abused. Uh, like she was mentally and emotionally just fucked up from this guy. And through it all, she was like she's determined, like she made the choice at one point like i don't care what he does i'm staying with him and while i 100 percent believe that you shouldn't be in a bad relationship with someone that you should set boundaries and you know they 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 have to treat you a certain way right however that is for yourself i do commend her because i i think she could see like he's his he is not defined defined by his disease and i think that she could see that there was something going on inside of him she saw him for the the man that he was the the bullfighter the the adventurer the safari guy that the writer and she made the choice like look i'm not going to be belittled by his diseases by his depression by his manic episodes i'm going to keep true to being with the man that i love so like i don't know i just mary was his last wife and i think the reason why is because she wouldn't let him go i agree with all of that also i think it just kind of sucks for her yeah she got him during his worst years absolutely his worst years. she met him like just a couple years before the decline really started yeah so that's got to be really hard for her like as bad as he treated his other wives like it was, they, had, they had fun Hemingway. They yeah, had, yeah. you know, outgoing and Pauline and got paranoid. it the best, I think. Yeah, Paul. I think his relationship with Pauline not only was, like, one of the longest ones, but also probably the healthiest and, like, happiest. <laughs> Healthy-est. Not <laughs> healthy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they had 13 really good years together. Yeah. And then it went to shit. Sure. So, 
another interesting thing about Old Man in the Sea, it was also like one of the fastest books that he wrote. He wrote it in eight weeks. And um, he said something about how like he wrote The Sun Also Rises really fast too. But then he said he had to entirely rewrite the whole thing. Whereas yeah. Old Man in the Sea, he saw it as being like perfect after draft one. Because it wasn't his original idea. Mm-hmm. End of the day, you know, and a lot of people, they give him credit for it being his one of his greatest works, which I, I like I haven't read it. But I wanted to. <laughs> I just haven't. Oh, didn't have pisses the freaking me off time. so bad. <laughs> but like, it came from stories that he accumulated uh, all together um, from the like Cuban tales and and stories that he'd hear from fishermen at the bars and things. like and that. And a little bit of what he lived because right. he, he would go would, out marlin fishing. fishing all yeah. the time. And there was one story early on in his time in Cuba where after like a two hour fight with the fish or something, it got away. And I was yeah. like, Ooh, yeah, I see that coming up in your, your work. And so I, I think that there's like, it, it's good because we get to see him not in his main character as much, but then at the same time, this was the one that got criticized the most for being him just writing about his own life. Oh. And he hated it. He hated the fact that he could never break out of writing about himself. Um, and he wanted to prove to everybody that he could. And that's where a lot of these other stories, the sea book, um, I, I can't remember what the air or the land one were, but in those ones, he was having a hard time writing because he was, he was trying to not write about himself. Um, and to be honest, I don't think he's capable because he's the most important character in his life. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no rule that says writers shouldn't be able to write about themselves. It's like, just write a good book. And just accept it. Yeah. Yeah. You have such an interesting life. Like, sure. (laughs) Like, you have countless novels that you could write based on little parts of your life. So I think it's it's unfortunate that that tormented him so much. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think before we start really diving into... um, The very end. The very end of his life and really what what all that kind of led to i'm looking at my notes um he was manic (laughs) literally torturing his wife who resolved to stay with him it just i i give her credit i know it sucked uh and it's not always a good idea but i do give her credit for that he actually got super mad at uh f scott fitzgerald's biographer Oh, uh, for for saying that he didn't do a good job and he came out saying he he was doing really bad he did a bad job uh, but then he apologized to him and then immediately after ringed him again like it was it was really bad he's like that all the freaking time there uh, was... do you have his mom dying in here no I don't okay he was fucked up when his mom died was he, he was really sad yeah because he started to really understand her a lot I think what did she die from was it natural causes just I don't old know old age or whatever I don't know but um one of the things that I found really interesting is how um, they they looked at, and I don't know if this is a quote from Hemingway or just one of his biographers, but they talked about like Grace is <laughs> this is this is so them. Grace's number one job at being a mom was being a really good mom, not being a good mom towards the kids. I know that sounds weird. Like being a good mom from an outsider perspective. Exactly. So he he got his baby book after she died, right? And he's looking through it and the realization that all the clippings, all the things that were in this book praised her as a mom, not praising him as a human being growing up. 
Like that was her goal as being a mom is being the best mom that she could be, not raising good children. Like, isn't that fucked up? I mean, and isn't yes. that so indicative of what he became? Like, yes, his mom was a narcissist. Yeah. Shocker. So was he. <laughs> like, as much as he, like, butted heads with his mom and didn't like her at different points, like, he was so much like her. Yeah. Um, one of the other quick things before we really get into the end of his life is he had a tumultuous relationship with his sons. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Patrick who was um, a cross-dresser. Um, and that really that really messed with their relationship. Um, he, he was married to a woman and he still was a cross dresser. And I think that if, if I had to, you know, um, what is the damn terms? Sofa, sofa counseling <laughs> oh, or whatever. Last time, like, yeah. Like armchair therapist armchair or something. Therapist. Thank you. That's what it is. You got it right. Armchair therapist. If I, if I was to do that right now, I'd say like, Ernest probably hated Patrick doing that because Ernest couldn't fucking do that. <laughs> Because Ernest was obsessed with gender swapping in his sexual play with um, with Mary or Martha. I can't remember. Like there was a lot of times where they would swap gender roles and um, to to the point where people would be like, yo, is Mary lesbian? And he's like, no, if anything, she's a gay man. Yeah, then they would play that out in the bedroom. Like they would write letters to each other where he would basically be like, You're the best gay guy I could ever find, or something like that. And she would play into it. Like it was their sexual fantasies that he was a dude, that she was a dude. Right? So, like, there was a lot of, of that kind of androgynous gender swapping, all that. And again, I'm trying not to get all into it, but it no, plays a role. No, I think this is really interesting, though, because I think that's one of the side effects of like reading this biography, which is a very good, detailed biography, but it was written in the 60s. 60s, it, yeah. Yeah, it was published in 1968. So, so it's like, not gonna Carlos that. Baker's not going to talk about this. <laughs> uh, and, like, and so you even see that in some, I think it was the Garden of Eden, you see a lot of that theme running through that. Interesting. Um, so that's why I bring it up, because it does pertain to his writing even. And his son, like I think that there's a little bit, I, I wouldn't say he's jealous of his son for living out his fantasies and being a crossdresser. But no, but it's just like it's a little probably, resentful. Yeah, it's that thing where like the things you hate about people other people are usually the things that you hate about yourself or are too scared to do. Or, exactly. Yeah. So I, I think that there might've been some of that. And one of my favorite lines, and I ne- I didn't write down who said it. Um, I think it might've been Mary or no, it was Pauline. Fuck. I think it was Pauline. I don't know. I'm really, really, really sorry. It was a 30 hour audio book. <laughs> anyway, uh, he didn't like almost all of his son's wives. Like, he never approved of their wives, ever, right? Especially when they got remarried and all kinds of stuff. And someone straight up told him, like, you need to chill out. Your sons have put up with all of your women. You can put up with theirs. And I was like, oh, shit. That is the most poignant thing you can tell to someone like Hemingway. Like, you don't have the right to disapprove of other people's women. Especially after he abandoned his sons, yeah, made them like take trains to come see him. Once his son with Hadley like was on a train to come see him, I think that's when he got the news about his father. Yeah, and he like bailed. Yeah, and was like, "Here, random hired help person, <laughs> watch my child's son." Yeah, like, man, I he, this dude does not have a leg to stand on. Yeah, I loved that line so much. That's great. a great line. I'm glad somebody finally told it to him like it was. Yeah. 
So um, toward the end of the, the 1950s is when the deterioration really starts. Um, part of this was more injuries. He and uh, Mary got in a couple of plane accidents in Africa. Like the day, one day, one plane accident. The next day, their plane bursts into flames. Yeah, it was fucked up. Yeah, he so got he, messed up from he, that, too. He had, like, broken ribs, burning, concussion. So, so Not just a concussion. He had uh, cerebral liquid fluid Ooh. leaking out of his head. Okay, this was not a small concussion. This is not like you are running and you fell on the ground and you kind of bump your head. This is the definition, the epitome of a concussion. And I don't your think he brain, got medical care right away. Yeah, not at all, because he's he doesn't he's too busy he's like ah i got dinner tonight with i got dinner with the fitzgeralds i gotta go i'm drunk i don't i don't make good decisions and i got a concussion yep <laughs> that's probably exactly what he that's, said that's that's my impersonation of Hemingway. so yeah and i don't obviously i'm not a doctor but i think probably a lot of his health problems and all of these concussions contributed to his mental deterioration um so they bought a new home at the end of 1959. They left Cuba for the last time in 1960 um, after he and Mary heard that Castro wanted to nationalize property owned by foreigners. They left a lot of their stuff in Cuba and they never got it back. Yeah. Um, and then also in 1960, he was constantly paranoid about money and his safety. He was stressed that he had left those manuscripts back in Cuba and would probably never see them again. He also got paranoid thinking that the FBI was monitoring his movements in Idaho, which uh, the he FBI- He got highly paranoid. He got really paranoid, yeah. but actually it turned out that the FBI had in fact opened a file on him during World War II sure. uh, when he was doing stuff in Cuba and J. Edgar Hoover had an agent in Havana watch him in the 50s. So a little bit justified paranoia there, <laughs> but he was driving Mary insane and you've yeah. talked about that he did not treat her well. Mm-hmm. His doctor suggested Hemingway go to, is it the Mayo Clinic or the Mayo Clinic? I don't know. I think it was Mayo. Honestly. I think it's Mayo Clinic. Um, I should really know that in Let's Minnesota. There's Mayo on there. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so he he went to the the clinic in Minnesota, and as he kind of like skims over the treatment in here. I read elsewhere that he got electroshock therapy when yeah. he was at the clinic. Yeah. Which uh. Again, not a doctor. Not sure how helpful electroshock it, therapy apparently, is. Apparently, this is what they wrote in the other biography I wrote, or I read, not wrote. Um, <laughs> they used it on his son, Patrick, too. To, really? To cure him of his cross-dressing Definitely tendencies. not effective for that. <laughs> apparently, it worked. Uh, well, yeah, if you get shocked for doing something, maybe you won't do it anymore. Classic conditioning. <laughs> I'm not sure There's if There's a difference. I'm not sure if it, like, cures manic depression, though. Um, so... He was there for a long time. Yeah. Uh, went back to catch him the following April, about three months after being released. So I don't know if it was just like a slow journey or whatever across the country to get back to Idaho. Um, the treatment didn't take very well because nope. Mary found him holding a shotgun in the kitchen and she was like, mm, let's not do this. So <laughs> his doctor came, sedated him. He went to like the local hospital uh-huh. and then they brought him back to like pick up clothes or something and he got the shotgun again and was like threatening to shoot himself. Yeah. So there's uh I don't know where this fits in that whole timeline and all that, but there's the there's a whole thing where he uh they were like, Yo, you're crazy and he's like, No, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. And they're like, Oh, he's he's fine, he's totally fine. 
And then they, the second they let him loose, he goes and starts looking for something to kill himself with. Yeah. Uh, like on the plane, they, they had to stop and refuel for their plane. And he tried to run himself into the plane's propeller. Oh. Yeah. Like anytime they let him loose, he was looking for a way to kill himself. So that was probably after they took him back to pick up his clothes. Because I remember reading that yeah, he was struggling, not letting him belt him into the plane and yep. stuff. Um, so they, they take him back for more electroshock therapy. He gets released the second time in late June, and then within days, it's July 2nd, 1961, when he gets up in the morning, calmly walks down to the basement, gets one of his favorite shotguns out, goes back upstairs, and kills himself. Yep, shoots himself in the face with a shotgun, the exact same thing that his father did. Yep. Well, his dad used a handgun, but- Oh, really? Oh, I thought it was a shotgun. (laughs) He used a Colt pistol, I think. But- he displayed the exact same paranoia that his father did. He had a lot of the same health issues his father did. He was obsessed with his finances and taxes just like his father was. I mean, I, it's scary how much he displayed like his father before he did exactly what his father did. Which also makes me curious. Cause on the one hand, I think that some of his health problems and the concussions, that, like did, all not of the, that did not help. But also, like, I wonder if it was a little bit genetic, too, yeah. just because he did it so similarly to how his father did it. Yeah, it's it's super interesting to me. It's kind of scary. And I think that the legacy of his family even continued to, to struggle with mental illnesses. Um, so I think that in the Hemingway family, there is a fine line between creativity and uh, insanity. And I think Hemingway is part of the stereotype of that, too. I yeah. mean, he's one of the most famous authors who has this kind of, like, mental illness he even spiral. said He even said himself, only the best authors are crazy. Yeah. Which is bullshit. That is bullshit. That's just, that's just you giving yourself permission to be, one, say that you're one of the greatest authors, and two, to justify you being an insane person. Yeah. So I think, I think this is one of the places where that stereotype really comes from, and it's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, Alcohol doesn't help either. He was so drunk all, all the, the time. time. It was seriously a, a big problem with him. That's why I was making the joke earlier. Like, he would have two scotch and sodas before lunch every single day Mm -hmm. he'd show up for breakfast plastered sometimes um and it it got to a point where people were like oh when he's when he's trying to be healthy and he only has two glasses of wine with dinner and people were like oh my god that's so much better for you than the five shots of whiskey two glasses of wine and then the after dinner scotch and sodas like (laughs) It's just, it's crazy how much he drank and it did not help his mental uh, acuity at all. Yeah. I mean, if I've got one, one big takeaway from learning about Hemingway. Yeah. I've got a whole, I've got my little list. You're almost ready for my, my takeaway is he's a fascinating dude. He did so many interesting things that were probably really helpful for informing his writing and stuff. Yeah. Uh, Just all those adventures. That's really cool. I think it's unfortunate that he struggled with alcoholism, the yeah. mental health issues. I I think as a writer, I wish his legacy were a little like cleaner. But we also don't get to don't get <laughs> to make those choose, decisions. Yeah. So great writer, a a troubled man, obviously. Yeah. Not a perfect person, not very nice to Do people who cared about him. Do you think his troubles were self inflicted though? I think a lot of them were like he didn't treat people well. Yeah, that's a self-inflicted trouble. Yeah, uh, he he was an alcoholic. Uh, he he struggled with a lot of things. I mean, and- if 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 he was an alcoholic, that's one thing. You know, the disease is within him; it's in his genetics. Um, I think it's the choice 
choices that he made that led to it and his acceptance of his alcoholism. Yeah, you know, I, he, I saw no indication that he ever like he really tried yeah, to stop. Ever. He wanted to drink because it, it helped him work. Mm-hmm. It made him feel good. And that might be a byproduct of the times, too. Sure. Like they didn't have I mean, even now we don't really have mental health awareness or we're not. It's it's harder. You The second you say anything, there's 10 people who disagree with you. Yeah. I'm sure there's people listening to this show who are like, alcoholism is not a disease. It's like, all right, man, if you want to say that, then you can say that. That's I also not that. helpful for like helping people stop yeah. being alcoholics. Like, right. Yeah. Not um, that you can ever stop being an alcoholic, but <laughs> it's it's not helpful to have that kind of like condescending or judgmental view right. and that was probably 10 times worse in the 1930s 40s 50s 60s yeah, where you're supposed to be a tough man yeah. you drink because every man drinks and you go out you you bust your head open and then you go kill a lion with your bare hands yeah and you don't talk about what's going on in your brain space no not at all you hit your wife and then she has to give you children yep <laughs> <laughs> that's basically it so yeah, yeah. that's that's my takeaway Go off um, on your sermon. It won't be long because we're we're getting pretty <laughs> pretty long on time here. Uh, I already I already kind of talked about like it, we skipped a lot because he lived so much, but he wrote about it. Um, he wrote his own memoir, but then on top of that, his fiction was based on his own life. So, if you guys are interested in that period where we jumped so hard, <laughs> please go check out his writing. I mean, I, it's worth reading at least something. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of The Sun Also Rises, but only because I like elves and swords and fire <laughs> and spaceships. Like, it's just not my style. But I do very much see his writing style, and I appreciate it. Um, and looking at him was – let me let me jump back. Going back into his writing style, again, he I feel like reading about this era is about reading the perfection of American literature – I think until this time, we we've got people who are you know the the novelization novels were new um, in Jane Austen's time, right, seventeen eighties ish. So this is only a hundred and fifty years after that. Um, it you've got to it's basically like the same sort of period process between where we're at now and when movies started getting made, right? So. There's been a ton of experimentation, and now we're at a place where, like, digital um, movie effects are happening. And people are are getting to a point now where we see on YouTube crazier stuff than what was being made in the 90s, right? Because people are – the technology is changing, and people are more uh, interested in it. It's more accessible, and people are really perfecting their art. And I think we, we can really see a lot of that change in storytelling it's why we get shows like game of thrones and and westworld i'm saying hbo uh netflix shows that are really stranger good. things stranger things thank you um hulu's got handmaid's tale yes. hey um so like you're seeing tv shows that are as good if not better than most movies right now so like there's there's a change in the way art is being done through um motion picture and I think that's kind of where he was. He was someone who wanted to perfect all things. He did it with fishing. He did it with uh, being an ambulance driver. Hunting. How, hunting. He did it with everything. It, one could say Boxing. he was trying to do it with wives. Like he was trying <laughs> to be a better husband to the new one, but he never really succeeded. So, so seeing this period is really interesting to me because there are so many writers who were doing the same thing. And that this is point number three. Studying Hemingway 
was like studying all the writers, his contemporaries at the same time, because you get to see Stein and, and Fitzgerald and um, Ezra Pound, Ezra Pound. Thank you. You know, um, T.S. Eliot comes up a whole bunch because like he's in this era. He's in this area. He hung out with Steinbeck and his wife at one point. Yeah. Like you cannot read about Hemingway without learning about the other authors that were also bohemian and trying to perfect the art of writing and and so it was it was really really interesting to me from that aspect um and my last point was um leading in from that i think the reason why hemingway was such a good writer um and was also kind of his downfall is because he was such a competitive person and he saw Fitzgerald and Stein and all the, his friends and all the writers around him. He was reading their work. He was a contemporary to them as well. And he needed to be the best. Mm-hmm. And I I take that uh, with a grain of salt at, at how he approached it. And I want to be the same way, uh, especially like through this podcast. If I can reach out to authors, if we can talk to authors and and writers who are who are writing right now, what will in a hundred years be one of the greatest bits of twenty first century uh, <laughs> writing? Like I want to be a contemporary to them. I want to be someone who they talk about. And when they study T W. Clausen, the author, <laughs> they learn about Hannah Ray Lambert and. All the other authors, I can't think of one, and I don't want to just <laughs> shout out names, you know, that, that he was friends with or he corresponded with. And so I I really liked that aspect of Hemingway, that he was a, a friendly guy. He liked to be friends with people. He wasn't a nice guy. He was, he was a friendly a <laughs> guy. There's a difference. And so um, I just, that's what, that's what I take away from it. Be a contemporary to the people around you. Don't isolate yourself. And you'll be a better writer for it. Boom. Boom. That was a good sermon. Thank you. It was All only right. five minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh... I guess we better get out of here then. We've gone a little bit long, but yeah. uh, I hope you all enjoyed this. I, I certainly enjoyed learning more about Hemingway. I think he's one of those authors that everybody feels like they know a ton about him, and then you and get then into you his life and you're like, holy shit, no, him. I don't. Yeah. I'll be honest. I did not enjoy this at all. <laughs> I really didn't. I didn't like I didn't like the long biography. I didn't like The Sun Also Rises. I was bored to tears. I cannot wait to do something different. What are we doing next, Hannah? Are, are we doing a teaser? Yeah, man. Tyler and I are going to talk about the thing that we know a ton about. <laughs> <laughs> um. uh, at, at a time when we are secluded from the people we love and isolated from others, maybe you're forgetting about how to have good relationships with other people. Mm-hmm. So Hannah, who's not married, and me, who's been married for long enough to talk about it... <laughs> are going to read relationship books and while that might sound super boring we've picked out some some good ones that i think will be really fun to discuss they are gems and i will also be sharing uh some some tales from the single life i can't wait to hear (laughs) which i think will be fun for tyler because tyler has been married since before tinder and bumble were a thing so (laughs) yeah i i married my high school sweetheart i've had a total of two girlfriends in my life. I married the second one. So <laughs> so we're both going to learn some things yeah. during the next episode, and we can't wait to talk about that. Yeah. 
Uh, until then, if you guys have something to say to us, if you want to tell us ideas that you have for episodes or tell us how you feel about Hemingway or any of the other authors that we talked about, you can email us at lewisandlovecraft at gmail.com. You can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash lewisandlovecraft. You can talk to us on Twitter, or not Twitter, <laughs> screw Twitter. Do not talk to us on Twitter. <laughs> <Yeah>. Instagram, <laughs> at Lewis and Lovecraft, Lewis and Lovecraft. Um, I'm on there quite a bit, throwing some pictures up. Feel free to, to comment on them. Tell us how you think, what you think. Or how you think. Or how you the think. The process is how fascinating. How do you think? Electrical brainwaves. Um, you can also go to our website, lewisandlovecraft.com, if you want to try and connect with us through that. And as always, we want to give a shout out to Jake Basson for our awesome intro music. Uh, you can find him at soundcloud.com slash Jake Basson, B-A-S-S-E-N. He has all sorts of different songs, different genres. Um, and I've heard a rumor that he's open to doing more intro music if if y'all are interested. Yeah, if you've got a podcast or a show that you're interested in doing or do you just want some music made, that dude's a freaking genius. He's good. Um, remember to subscribe. I recently switched over to, to Spotify. Me too. To listen to podcasts. And so subscribe to us there. We're there or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts at just subscribe let us know that you're listening and stay up to date with our shows right and while you're there uh write us a quick review rate us uh let us know what you think of the show let other people know what you think of the show yeah it helps out a lot unless you think that we're dumb and you don't like our voices then you know what you can just say what you feel i don't yeah i'm okay with it all right so what's the last thing that people can do the most important thing you can do is tell a friend. Tell a friend. It Shout takes it from the rooftop. two seconds. The next person you see, just be, just tell them. Lewis and Lovecraft, between lewisandlovecraft.com. No, wait. Lewis between and Lewis and Lovecraft <laughs> podcast at lewisandlovecraft.com. It's a, it's a mouthful. You know what? It might take more than two minutes. Just tell them to Google between Lewis and Lovecraft <laughs> and they'll find us somehow. You'll find us there. Yeah, just tell a friend, guys. It's really easy and fun. Um, so, yeah, Hannah. You want to say some intro that's going to be poignant for our next episode? Next episode. God, I got nothing. Love <laughs> to love. Oh, <laughs> Mowitz brings us together. together.